Howdy, welcome to another week of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week we have a special guest all the way from the Netherlands, my friend Hans Afringa. Hans wrote a book about whiskey that I happened upon, and I thought, I gotta talk to this guy about whiskey, and he was kind enough to do so. Go check him out. We have links in the show notes to where you can find out more about him and his wife. Before we get started, a book that came to mind as we had this conversation that's on the Canon shelf is called Joy at the End of the Tether, The Inscrutable Wisdom of Ecclesiastes by Douglas Wilson. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is confusing to many folks who see it as a debate between an untrustworthy nihilist and a genuinely wise man who trusts in God instead of giving away to despair. But Pastor Wilson takes issue with that interpretation, arguing that the author of Ecclesiastes is looking at the world with biblically informed vision, because God is sovereign and will one day judge all men and restore the world. Believers can work, rejoice, marry, eat, and worship God in hope. You can get Joy at the End of the Tether today at canonpress.com. So without further ado, meet my friend Hansa Fringa. All righty, welcome to Canon Calls. This week, very special guest is my friend Hans Ofringa, who I learned about from the whiskey field guide that I purchased. You can find that, I assume, all places. I got it from Amazon and mailed to me. So wherever you get your books, you can find Hans there. Hans, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Hans, can you introduce us to you? Who are you and how did you become the Whiskey Field Guide author? Well, that's a, that's a long story, but <laughs> I'll, I'll, start, <laughs> I'll start in the Netherlands. I'm Dutch by, by origin. After high school, I studied English literature and business journalism. My original intention was to become a teacher in history and English literature. But I also wrote already for the school newspaper and later for a small publishing house in my hometown. And I liked writing so much that I thought maybe I can eke a living out of writing. So <laughs> I started uh, working at the local publishing company as an editor for some special interest magazines. At the moment I graduated from high school, I got my first glass of whiskey. I was so fascinated by the drink, not only the taste and the, and the aromas, but also the apparent history behind the drink. because it has been around for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. And as I would later learn, every whiskey has a story behind it. So after a couple of years, my formative years at the publishing company, I moved to a, an advertising company as a copywriter and media developer. But in the meantime, I started to sample more and more whiskeys. And in the end, uh, in 1990, I traveled with my best friend to Scotland to find out the source of the whiskey I was then coveting, which was a Glenlivet. And the Scots, they liked that the young guy from the Netherlands uh, was so interested in their national drinks. So they opened up their doors, literally, and gave me uh, a possibility to interview them from a production perspective, from a marketing perspective. And I also do photography, so I could do whole reports on what a distillery actually looked like. And at first, I only used these as prompts for my stories when I returned home, but then I... I got to like doing photography, so I ended up 
supplying magazines with my own photography and later on also books, other publishers, the fellow writers who needed uh, particular images that I could uh, hand them. So as of 1990, I could blend my profession as a writer with my passion for whiskey. And that's where it all started. Okay. So can you can you familiarize us with the whiskey landscape today? Is is this a product that's on the rise? Is it coming down? What's going on in the in terms of the market with whiskey? Yeah, if you if you look at uh, what happened in the late 1980s when uh, most people were drinking uh, vodka and lighter spirits and they didn't want to associate with their father's drinks anymore. It was the same in the US as in, in, in Europe. Bourbon was for old geezers with a cigar in hand and sitting in a Chesterfield. And here in, in Europe, it was roughly the same. Then Diageo, which is now the biggest player in the field, they uh, introduced six single malts called the classic malts from six different regions. And that kind of kick-started the growth of, of uh, scotch. And it, it never stopped since 1988. And in its wake, bourbon got rejuvenation and uh, uh, reassessment and to be frank i love i love bourbon as much as i do uh, uh scotch scotch and irish so bourbon could ride piggyback on the su- success of, of of scotch and the irish also came back with a vengeance because they they always say we invented whiskey upon <laughs> the scotch say, well, we we invented the marketing of whiskey so we've seen an astonishing uh growth in numbers not only from the regular distilleries but when Laws were loosened a little bit in the early 2000s. A lot of craft distilleries came to the fore. And whereas if I look at, at, uh, at the US, mainly about 90, 95% of all bourbon was made in Kentucky. Now it's made all over the States, every state, I think apart from Alaska and Hawaii, but I'm not entirely sure, does have its own distilleries. And they, they make bourbon, they make rye, they make even single malt whiskey. Uh, the same happened in uh, in Europe. As I said, I'm from the Netherlands originally. We have a, a tradition of gin, and all these gin distillers now turn their hands to whiskey as well. So it's not only booming in sales from the known brands, but also uh, mushrooming of, of craft distilleries like we've seen 20, 20 odd years ago with the home brewing and the craft brewers. So I, I feel like I've very familiar with sort of the boom in uh, beer craft and everything else, especially it seems like a big thing in the States. Are you saying also that happened with whiskey and bourbon? Yeah, indeed. And you now see there's some cross-fertilization. You may be familiar with with Brown Foreman, who owns Jack Daniel, uh, and they own uh, Woodford Reserve and some other interesting stuff. They bought recently bought three Scottish single malt distilleries, among which Ben Riach, which is uh, well-known, and Glen Bach under the, the aficionados. But the other way around, too, Glen Fittich, which is the, la- the largest player on single malt uh, worldwide, they bought Hudson Bourbon, which is uh, located, its distillery in Gardner, New York, okay. upstate. So you see the buying in stretches out throughout the world. Uh, if I tell you that Jim Beam is owned by a Japanese company. You might be surprised that that's what happened. The Japanese have built up a very powerful ownership in the whiskey world, and they've been doing that for 30-odd years, and they also make their own their own uh, single malt whiskey. Wow. 
Is there anywhere that's, you've mentioned a few, well, for me, international places. Um, is there anywhere that's sort of notorious for whiskey consumption? Is there anybody that's sort of, is there any countries or, or places that they consume the most whiskey? Value-wise, the U.S., uh, and then I concentrate on, on Scotch, if you allow me for a moment. Value-wise, it's the U.S., but uh, uh, content-wise, uh, it might not come to your imagination immediately, but that's, uh, that's France, or France, as the Americans say. <laughs> <laughs> American uh, wife, so she corrupts my, my beautiful British <laughs> high school and later at the university. I'm sidetracking here. In France, they consume more uh, whiskey per capita in a month than cognac brandy in a year. Wow. You might know the company Pernod Ricard, French drinks company. Okay. They own about 20 distilleries in, in uh, Scotland, among which uh, Glenlivet, Shivers Regal, you, you may be familiar yes, with. Yes, yes. Uh, if you look at ownership, most of the distilleries are now part of large international conglomerates. There's only a handful of distilleries still in the hands of the descendants of the founding families. Glen Farkless is a, uh, an example. Glen Fiddith, Springbank has a couple of more. Wow. Of course, all the new kids on the block, they either survive or they get picked up by the, by the big boys if they're interesting enough or they bleed to death because they can't uh, finance the next step in their projected growth. Yeah. Could we, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Let's say if someone owns a reserve, the way that they have to finance those kinds of things, it's always been fascinating to me how people figure out how to do that. You may know that um, when you make whiskey, in Europe it's called new make spirit before it goes into a cask or a barrel. In the US, uh, the term uh, white dog is more common. Then you have to mature it for a couple of years before you can bottle and sell it. So if you start uh, from scratch a new distillery, what you see here is what what the, the new distillers do. They also make rum and vodka and gin because that doesn't have to age. So they have part of, of their distillate they will put in, in, in casks and barrels and let it mature for years and years. And the rest, that'll keep the machine going, their gin, their unaged gin and vodka and rum. Fascinating. Uh, of course, the, the companies who, who've been around for a long time, like the Glenfiddich, they started in the late 19th century. So they have a long, long, not only track record, but they've, they could build up uh, uh, large stocks in the early 80s before the classic malts were introduced. There was a big whiskey loch, as the Scots called it, because people tended to drink light spirits and there was an overproduction. There was far too much in the warehouses. So what happened then, independent brokers came on the market and they, they bought up the surplus of, of casks. And then when the market was booming again, they would sell whiskey that was then much older because it had been maturing in these casks for many years uh, under their own label, but still mentioning on the label from which distillery it came. So you had, had a whole set of new players. And in the U.S., you have various independent bottlers like Compass Box. There is uh, one cast nation, Joshua Hatton, who is in New Haven, Connecticut. He's he's, he's world famous uh, for his independent bottlings. Wow. He's even made keeper of the quay by the Scots, which is uh, the largest honor the Scottish whiskey industry will give to an individual who has shown exceptional uh, performance in promoting 
Scorchy whiskey in Scotland. I love that you mentioned uh, the New Haven, Connecticut. I think if somebody had a bingo card for my podcast, New Haven, Connecticut will get mentioned in every single episode. So <laughs> I don't know why. It's just such a, I don't know. I have no clue. Who would have thought? In terms of the process, could you walk us through a basic whiskey? What is the process that distinguishes itself from other, uh, from other sort of spirits? Give you a, a crash course in two minutes. Yeah. The basics for every whiskey are the same. It's whiskey is made from three components, and that's a type of grain. You can't make whiskey from grapes or fruit, clean water, and yeast. And that can either be baker's yeast or distiller's yeast or brewer's yeast or your own yeast uh, strain if you, if you uh, keep that alive like a lot of home brewers do. What happens is um, if I concentrate on malt whiskey because uh, bourbon is made from corn, whereas uh, malt whiskey is made from, from malted barley, there's a little bit of a difference. So I'll concentrate on, on barley. You have to mold the barley in each barley, barley corn. Okay. Inside is starch. And if you soak the barley corn into lukewarm water for a couple of days and then spread it on a floor, it starts to germinate. What happens? Enzymes will help converting the starch into soluble sugars. And sugars are very important to make alcohol. So in the end, after some days, you have very full, rich, saturated barley corns. You crush them into a kind of flour. You put the flour in a huge fat, which is called the mash tun. You add lukewarm water. You stir it like porridge, and then you drain off the sweet water into a separate vessel. And that will go into a new vessel, and you add yeast. What happens then? The yeast will convert the sugary liquid into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide will be given back to the air, and some distilleries even uh, catch it, and they sell it to uh, manufacturers of sodas, and they can use it again oh, wow. in their drinks. Okay. Now, this first uh, step about meshing and fermenting is very akin to making beer. Only the beer brewer will add hops, whereas the distiller will put uh, that low beer-like uh, fluid that contains seven to nine percent alcohol. He puts it in a in a in a still, a pot still or a column still. Uh, pot still is a batch-oriented process, whereas in a column still you can make continuous twenty-four-seven distillate. By distilling it, what happens is the, the alcohol fumes will, will go up through the neck of the still uh, because they're lighter than basically than water. And it will be recondensed into an alcoholic liquid, about 22%. You have to have 40% at least to call it whiskey. So they distill it a second time, usually up to 60, 65%. And then you have a clear liquid. doesn't have any color. All color will come eventually from uh, maturing in a cask. They put the liquid in the cask, dilute it to 63.5%, and then let it mature in a warehouse for a minimum of three years. Because if you don't take three years, you're not allowed to call it uh, whiskey here in Europe. Oh, wow. in, in the US, it's a little bit different because they use corn and rye and wheat. After one day in a cask, you can already call it bourbon. But, <laughs> that, yeah. but that's not, I wouldn't recommend that. Straight bourbon, which are the big the big bourbons, they have to uh, comply to a whole set of rules, among which longer maturation and some other rules, which is all, this is all described in separate chapters in the field guide. 
And after maturation, the whiskey will be sampled by the master blender. And when he says it's okay to be bottled, they'll bottle in a batch. That can be 10 years old, 12 year old. You see a 12 year old, say, Clenlivet, uh, which I mentioned before, that's uh, assembled from casks that were at least 12 year old. You can have a cask with 18 year old whiskey in it, but you're only allowed to put the youngest age on the label. That's different with rum. If you have a three-year-old rum and you do one teaspoon of 30-year-old rum in it, you're allowed to say this is 30-year-old rum. Right. Rum is not that regulated as, as whiskey. Would the same principle apply with so with wine? There's a big uh, sort of reverence for very old wine. Does that same principle apply to whiskeys? In a way, but wine um, matures further in the in a bottle. Once you've bottled whiskey and you have a good closure on it, there's no uh, air coming in or going out. So the whiskey itself won't change anymore. So if I have a 12-year-old whiskey in a bottle, which has matured 12 years in a cask, if I put it away for another 10 years and then open it, it's not 22 years old. Right. That's a big difference. However, when whiskey matures yearly, a small percentage of the contents of the cask will uh, evaporate. It's called the angel's share. That's because the, the wooden casks, they can breathe. And that's important because you have to get air in because oxidation forms a very important part of maturation. So it takes some of the alcohol fumes out and some of the, the air in. So over time, it's about one, one and a half to two percent uh, of the contents of the cask per year. If you keep a cask for 25 years, you will lose some percentage and that means what's what's left that will be, be more costly and also it has been in, in a warehouse for 25 years so took a, a position stock position there and that adds up to the price too now all of these are always or always are by a lot of people perceived as better but i've had five-year-old whiskies that were great right. and i've had 40-year-old whiskies that uh, my mouth did this <laughs> was so tannic turned into oak juice and there's another difference with wine and uh, whiskey wine has appellations the terroir is very important with wine but scotch can be made from barley sourced in canada or in australia or in england scots don't like doing that england but uh, <laughs> you know, <coughs> the old alliance and all that but that's also a main difference in order to call uh, scottish whiskey scotch uh, the barley can come from anywhere in the world, but you have to um, distill it, mature it, and bottle it in Scotland in order to uh, uh, call it scotch. If I take a cask out of Scotland, I buy casks on a regular basis, um, and I take it out of Scotland and bottle it in the Netherlands, I'm not allowed to put scotch on the bottle. Wow. There is a, a, a geographic denomination, but it has nothing to do with the, with the barley or the yeast itself water obviously because you have to make it in scotland you will use scottish water so you'll just go buy a cask that's fascinating can you tell me about that it started about 12 years ago no I, i'm sampling whiskey for the industry there so okay but you know my wife tastes with me she's the other half of the whiskey cup it's a very good taste so we we sample small amounts of whiskey and then we we give our opinion and then it can be bottled or not. And sometimes, one time I had the opportunity to uh, buy a, a cask of Springbank whiskey to go with one of my books 
was Book on Whiskey and Jazz. Um, they wanted to make a special Springbank Jazz edition for the Netherlands. And I was allowed to sample it and with the help of an importer and uh, liquor stores because I'm not allowed to sell uh, liquor to a consumer because I don't have a liquor license. Sure. What I can do is buy the cask and sell it to another business party. Okay. So we did the Springbank Whiskey, uh, the Jazz edition. Then two years later, we did the Springbank Blues edition with my book Bourbon and Blues. Uh, that started it all, and then our hometown was nominated as the city of taste, the capital of taste in the Netherlands. And they asked if I could source a cask and have it bottled for our hometown, Zwolle, in the Netherlands. And I've done that for 12 years now. We source the cask, buy the cask, it's bottled in the Netherlands, we deliver it at a local liquor store, and uh, we launch the whiskey with a little festive party. And people, uh, it's about 300 bottles. Wow. Uh, people, people just, and I hand number them. So people, uh, uh, they already sign up for the next year and they want the same a bottle number. Very cool. That's a, that's a nice sideline. It's not my regular business, but sure. it's nice that the, the industry offers me uh, that, uh, that opportunity. That's yeah, very cool. I want to see uh, if I can get on a list for this kind of opportunity myself. Um, <laughs> one question that I had, and, and I think this might be a, a bourbon question, but I've noticed, and I'm sure you see these, they come out every year with sort of what, what were the best whiskeys of this year lists online. And I try to pay attention to them or my, or my dad will send them to me. But what I've noticed maybe in the last few years is that the number one bottle has been bottled in bond. Now, is that a trend or does that distinction make it taste better? What, what is bottled in bond? Good question. And that applies not only to bourbon, but also to uh, whiskey worldwide. When, when you make whiskey, uh, the, the excise office, uh, uh, the tax office wants its share. Now, if you <laughs> picture this, you make 10 million liters a year, like Fidesz uh, like does, you put it in a cask, and then you have to pay taxes on 10 million, but in 10 years, you will uh, incur the monies for it. So that was not a sustainable business model. It was the same in, uh, in the US, that the, the distilleries had huge stocks and they couldn't uh, sell them yet because they were by, by law not allowed yet to bottle it. So both in the uh, UK and in the US, people stood up and said to the government, listen, we have to have a bottled in bond act. If we can, as long as we don't sell it to the, to the public uh, and you have a three tire system in the US that's different here, we, it's a bit easier here to, to step over one tire. So as long as we don't actually sell it, but we have bottled it, we need a bonded warehouse because it was bonded by the tax office. And that's called bottled in bond. Wow. So it could have been in a, in a warehouse for a couple of years already in a bottle. So you know it's a four-year-old. It won't get older than a four-year-old. That solves the problem of paying tax over uh, maturing whiskey that you can't sell yet. It's also difficult. You fill the cask, and I, like I told you, in 20 years, it's a 20-year-old whiskey you lose one and a half to 2% per year. And if you have to pay taxes on something that's then got lost, that wouldn't be fair. So <laughs> term bottled in bond doesn't, it's not a, uh, a connotation of a special quality. Okay. It's just, it works better for the industry. That's fascinating. So do you have any guesses as to why these particular bottled in bonds are making it to the top of the list? Is it just that was a great year, and then with the tax stuff, they had to get it out. Or what's your guess about why they keep making it to the top of the list? Not, not many consumers were familiar with the term "bottled in bond," but basically, it's, it's marketing bullshit. 
Okay. All right. Whether it's bottled in bond or not, whether it's a, a sour mesh whiskey or not, the, the main thing and the most imp- important thing is, do you like it? That's good. And if you like it, you have a good whiskey. And if someone says, oh, you need a 23-year-old Pappy Van Winkle, you have to uh, deplete your savings account for it. I would say highly overrated. <laughs> it's nice, but it's highly overrated. And it's the same with, with other, uh, like Colonel Taylor's bottled in bond. Great whiskey. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think the price quality ratio has gone through the roof. And you can make, if you create scarcity and then you start up a whole marketing machine, it's, that's not only the case with uh, uh, with whiskey, with all kinds of luxury products. You, you can really hype, overhype a uh, a brand. And I'm not very fond of it. Well, I'm, I'm an independent writer. I'm not connected to any any brand, so I look at it from a very objective point of view. Sure. If I do tastings, uh, Becky and I do blind tastings for the international whiskey competitions. We get sets of samples, and we don't know what it is. We just give our our notes. And we score these whiskies via a certain method that all the judges the worldwide have to use. But we don't know what we're getting. We can recognize stuff because we have a big olfactory library built up over 35 years. But the whole important thing with these um, international competitions is that the experts don't know what they're tasting. Can you talk a little bit about Pappy Van Winkle? I feel like maybe that's one of the uh, premier brands that you're speaking of in terms of... uh there's a bit of scarcity and a lot of hype. A lot of people want Pappy. How, how did that come to be? Are you familiar with the, their story at all? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's, there's a very interesting book uh, written by, I think, Pappy Van Winkle's granddaughter. And it's worthwhile reading. Uh, he was a remarkable man and he made beautiful whiskey. And um, when his, his son took over and later his grandson, who I know personally, he and I did tastings together in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, wow. I had a lot of talks with him. And he said, well, my father and, and I could still source from very old stock, beautiful old whiskey. And we would, we had first pick because they don't have a distillery. Pappy Van Winkle used to have the old Stitzel Weller distillery, but that went, that closed, I think it was in the 50s. And now it's owned by Diageo and they started it up again. They had beautiful old whiskey that Pappy still was involved in making, but they ran out of stock. So now what they buy is from Buffalo Trace, and they have first pick, and it's from a special warehouse. It's still very good whiskey. But I also told them, I said, you artificially make a scarcity and then drive up the price. I said, that's a business model. I don't like it, but who am I? I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a distiller or a marketer of whiskey. But that's, that's basically how they do it. I, I won't, again... I won't say it's not good whiskey. It's, it's a very fine whiskey. But the way it's it's positioned, you can compare it with a Windows computer or an Apple computer. I was so stupid in 1995. I bought an Apple and I'm hooked to it and I pay far too much for uh, <laughs> power. Yeah. Brand loyalty. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But if you like that and, and you can spend the money, I would say buy it. There's nothing wrong with it. Sure. Now, we kind of got into Pappy there. Could you in the book you talk about Elijah Craig and Evan Williams and and Jack Daniel, John Jameson? Are there other men in the whiskey history that you are especially fond of? Whether it's their story, not just their product, but can you tell us a little bit about maybe some of your favorite men in in whiskey history? Well, definitely that would be Tommy Dewar. Okay, uh, well, Dewar. 
he was the first to make a video clip and it's still on uh, it's still on youtube you should try and find it it's it's a horrible little movie but it was the first moving picture ad for a whiskey he was also known for his uh, aphorisms and he had these witty one-liners he came up with like uh, do right and fear no man don't write and fear no woman <laughs> that kind of the mind is like a parachute if you don't open it it won't work and he had a whole series of these they're, they're in a little book called doerisms he was a very funny man and he was a marketing genius before the term marketing was even around we're talking about the late 19th century he was one of the the last big whiskey barons of of that age so yeah i would I would mention him immediately, but are, there are more guys like uh, Andrew Usher, who supposedly invented blending at his mother's kitchen table, and that's why we have blended whiskey. Wow. There, there's there's stories, so many stories to tell, and I tried to cover some of these nice stories in a separate section of the field guide, which is called Whiskey Trivia. It's about people, about history, nice to know things, and it's apart from the chapters where I describe how the different kinds of whiskey are made. It's a very thorough book, and I don't want to give any more away that, that folks, you know, just listen to this and not, and not buy the book. But one piece of trivia that I wanted to ask you about was, I think this was in the trivia section, but the moonshine's relation to NASCAR. I, <laughs> I, I think this American audience in particular would appreciate, would appreciate that piece yeah. of trivia. Yeah, I'm not going to read from my own work here, but there's a, a very distinct uh, connection between the two. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 worth maybe that part is worth the price of admission there for uh especially for for us on this side of the world. So, let's say folks go by the field guide. What would you recommend if somebody listens to this interview and and they would like a a sort of broad take on whiskey, they kind of want to get more familiar, how would you recommend they go about that process? Do you have any tips? Well, my tip is always, whether you're a novice or you're very experienced, treat what you have in your glass as if it's your first, because you will have your eyes open, your ears, your mouth, your your whole perception of a drink. Also, if you go to a distillery, I've seen professionally 150 distilleries, but I always go in and I put my mind on blank and I'll, I'll say the tour guide, don't be intimidated, just treat me as a whiskey tourist and who has never been in a distillery because I want to hear from you how you uh, perceive your work and how you uh, tell the story how, how whiskey is made. I love it. So would you recommend, I mean, you, you were mentioning the great news now is that we, we probably have a better shot in 2020 of finding a distillery somewhat close to us than we would have in the past. Is that correct? Yeah. If you want to visit, want to first visit to distilleries in the U.S., uh, I would certainly go to Mount Vernon. That's George Washington's original distillery. It was uh, restored to its former splendor, and you can really see how he made he made rye whiskey, not not bourbon, in the late uh, 18th century. It's it's marvelously done. And then I would go to Kentucky and at least go to Four Roses because they have the most interesting story about what they do with yeast. Nobody else does that. Uh, you have to learn that. Maker's Mark is a great, great one to go to, and Woodford Reserve in Frankfurt. And when you're there, just continue and go to uh, Buffalo Trace. Right, right. And there's the American Whiskey Trail. There's a Bourbon Whiskey Trail. You can find all about that on, on the web. There's excellent books about it. 
American author Susan Riegler, who's I always call her the Dame of Bourbon. She's been writing about bourbon for many, many years. Okay. Uh, Chuck Cowdery is, is a famous uh, bourbon connoisseur, a very outspoken guy. I have a, a couple of nice books. Fred Minnick, you might have heard of Fred Minnick. He's okay. a drinks writer. He is an interesting guy because he originally was a war reporter. He's been in the, in the Middle East and everything, and he came back, and then he eked out a living as a drinks writer. And he became well-known uh, for writing about whiskey. He's one of the younger authors, set, the generation that comes... I wouldn't say after me, that sounds so condescending. But, uh, he's younger than I am. <laughs> he's a young guy. Yeah, fair, yeah relatively young. Okay. I think he's late 30s, early 40s. Okay. And Susan is my age, and she's been around for uh, quite some time. She just, uh, with Peggy No Stevens, who is uh, related to Booker No, who is, uh, he, he doesn't live anymore, but he's one of the big names in, uh, in uh, Bourbon after Prohibition. She wrote together with uh, Susan Riegler and Peggy No wrote a very nice book about bourbon and food called Which Fork Do I Use With My Bourbon? It's just <laughs> out and I highly recommend it because the ladies have done a great job. It's it's full of fun and it's have nice tips how to set up your, your own bar, arrange your own tasting. So that's one I would recommend. Okay. And the field guide is a is it was meant as a, a primer. If you know nothing about whiskey. It's for really you. good to start with the book, but it's also, and that's my forty. I know that for many years of writing, that I can explain complex things in a way that uh, the layman enjoys reading it, but also the people who know far more about it are still enjoying it. Okay. That's how I set up the book. I wrote the synopsis. I sent it to five different people. Two of them didn't have any connection to the whiskey industry, and three of them came out of different areas. They gave me some advice, I made a new synopsis, and then I started writing a first draft of the manuscript, send it to them and said, tell me what you think lacks and what not. And especially the two guys who didn't know anything about whiskey, they came with such great advice because we, uh, our little group who has been writing about whiskey for very long, Charlie McLean, Jim Murray, Dave Broom, myself, we always have to not forget that a lot of people are new to the drink. So these two people who were reading my manuscript, they just came back and said, Hans, we don't know anything about whiskey, so we should really pay attention to that too. They were great help in uh, furthering the manuscript. In the end, my publisher, uh, Workman Artisan in New York, did a great job with the book. It's been selling uh, uh, very well, for which, of course, I'm happy. Becky is happy. Uh, of course. And she did some uh, some work in the background too. A lot of the images in the books are made by ourselves, either by Becky or by me. So we, we can deliver photography as well. And for a writer, that's not usual. Right. Well, the quality shows, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Hans. Where can where can folks, if they hear this and they want to keep up with more of what you're up to, where can we send them? Oh, I have a mini blog on my Facebook page and I, I do funny stuff. We have a Facebook page called The Whiskey Couple and we do announcements for the industry with new uh, whiskey. And that's connected to our Instagram account, which is also a whiskey couple. That's the easiest way to find out what we're doing. Just if you want to be friends with me and I like your face on the <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Ask to like and we will we'll respond. You can send me emails if you have questions. I don't know if you have time, uh, a little more time because no, please, email please. I got one of the most interesting experiences in my um, life as a whiskey writer. 
I've been writing for the Charleston Mercury for 14 years. I have my own column every four, fortnight. Now it's every month, but the, the previous years it was every fortnight I had a column. And they have a large following in the southeastern part of the U.S., mainly uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Texas, about 65,000 people. I got an email after a couple of years from uh, a lady, a very, very lively email. She wanted to uh, to know something about a, an old whiskey she had. And it appeared to be a whiskey that was uh, distilled before Prohibition, um, bottled during Prohibition as medicinal drink that was possible. It was a loophole in, in, the, in the law at the time. I said, well, I'm in Europe at the moment. I, ca- I can't do anything. But when I'm back in the US, I'd love to see uh, the bottle. So she invited me. And then she insisted I open the bottle. Now, this was a, a lady in her 80s. Wow. But I read her email. I thought, she's in her 40s, uh, very, very sprightly woman, very lively. And uh, she had invited her, uh, her son. She knew my publisher in, in Charleston, so he was there with his wife. And she said, oh, let's open the bottle. I said, well, I don't think we should do that. That's, that's worth a lot. And I don't want to be uh, the one who opens that. And then you'll find out that you can make a lot of money. If you want to sell it, <laughs> right? Because she, she she wasn't really interested in, in in drinking it. She said, "No, no, no! Please open it. We're gonna share it." It was a pint. It was about 0.5 liter, the old measures. So I drank it, and it was amazing stuff. It it had matured for 15 years, and it was beautiful, full flavored. And then she started to laugh. I said, "Why do you laugh?" Well, she said, "I have another case of 24 pints there in the corner." Whoa! What had happened? She had been given uh, cases of whiskey from uh, friends, and that was at the end of Prohibition. And there was a lot of whiskey still in bonds because they couldn't move it. So employees of that company were paid in cases of whiskey, a lot of cases of whiskey. And they were given away to friends and family, and they got cases as well. They drank them. And she said, my, my husband died, and I moved from where we were living then. I think they were living on Cape Cod at the time. Um, I moved to Charleston, where my husband originally came from, and I forgot about that we had a, another case. And wow. then suddenly, uh, my son was uh, in our uh, little uh, house in Cape Cod, and he came home and he said, "Mom, look what I what I found." And she said, "So I have this whole case, but we're not going to drink it anymore. You're well connected. Would you would you want to sell it for me?" I said, "Well, that's that's a friend's favor. I, I, I'd be happy to help you, but I don't want to do that on a commission basis or whatever." So it might take some time. So I started looking for someone who might be interested in it. And it took me five years. And then I found the right buyer here in the Netherlands. And the guy who bought the case, he flew to Charleston. He packed the bottles himself. And he flew back with the case. And he had a special seat next to him where the case with the 24. (laughs) Now, these bottles sell for between two and a half and 3,000 euro a piece. It's amazing. Wow. That, wonderful story. And I'm still uh, in touch with, uh, with with the family. They didn't want to have their name in, in, uh, mentioned. Uh, it's a very old, sure. uh, traditional family from the South. What's, so, what's your best yeah. guess as to what it was? Oh, it was uh, it was labeled. So I, I could see where it came from. Okay. And it was one of these companies that was especially founded uh, for handling... Um, large stocks of bourbon with a license uh, to sell it as, mi- uh, as medicinal. medicinal. Okay. Okay. And that worked as follows. Well. You had to have a, a permit for a pharmacy. You would go to your 
to your general practitioner, he would write you a recipe, go to the pharmacy, get your pint. Right. And I've been told that many, many medical doctors did self-medication during prohibition. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how I become the guy when you when someone finds sort of a seemingly rare alcohol that they give me a call to come try it and open it. But I'd like to let everybody know I'm open to being that person. Uh, you don't have to call Hans to fly him over. You could just call Jake. <laughs> <laughs> you, you enjoy uh, drinking whiskey yourself? I do. I do quite enjoy. I, I am a novice at best, but I I do enjoy uh, finding stuff that I like. And I, I, I meant to ask you, what did you have in your glass? You have a glass currently. It's a blend of malt called the Big Swirl. Wow. Look, that's it's, groovy. It's uh, from the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. SMWS. That's been around since the early 80s. Okay. And it's uh, society, it buys its own casks, bottles its own product, and only members can sell it. So you have to become a member. Wow. And then you have access to, um, to, their, uh, to their monthly uh, releases. And they, they do, this is a blended malt. So these are single malts from different distilleries and then blended together. 10-year-old. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful, fruity. One, but they also have from the regular distilleries. If you go to smws.com, you can see what they bottled. That's open information. You you can only buy it when you're a member, and they'll ship it throughout the. Wow. Uh, SMWS has a branch in the in the U.S. That's yeah. got to be uh, maybe one of the best mail days that you get. You know, the just whiskey is shipped to you. I imagine you get a lot yeah. of whiskey shipped to you. Is that is that true? People always think I have a house full of whiskey, but. Uh, we usually get samples, little bottles. Okay. Uh, I'll show you what it looks like. Uh, you just have a cabinet of samples. Yeah. Look, this is a. Oh wow. This is a specimen. Well, what I usually do, half of it uh, we taste, and then we write our tasting notes and send them to the uh, the one who sent it to us. And then I have a little bit left, and the, the lucky friend who's with me certain evening who likes whiskey i will say here's my sample cabinet pick your wow pick your um, flavor because i uh, for me uh, drinking whiskey is sharing experiences with people sure, sure. i'm not a whore i collect whiskey packagings because i've been doing that for 40 years so i have a whole uh, i have a little shed in the back of our garden and there i sit and contemplate but the walls are adorned with uh, empty packagings and i can see what Blandivit did in 40 years with changing the packaging which is only an example. That's brilliant. And then we have some distillers, they find it difficult to ship these little bottles. Sure. Cost far too much time, and they send me a 0 0.7, 0 0.75 bottle sometimes. Okay. And that we taste it, and we invite some friends to have a taste with us. So I enjoy whiskey, but I'm not a heavy whiskey drinker. I drink whiskey every day, but not in, in huge quantities. So I, I can never finish what, what the industry gives me, so I better give it to someone else. I love that. I love that. So do you you obviously know whiskey very broadly. You mentioned Glenn Livet a few times. Would that be your favorite? Well, it's one of my favorites, and it was one of the first distilleries I visited. Okay. My first journey to Scotland was in 1990. My goal was to go to Glen Livet. Okay. And so that's one of my uh, prime whiskey still. It's... Uh, it's also a memory. It's uh, it's the same what I had with uh, with bourbon. Four Roses was my first bourbon. Um, I became friends with the master distiller, 
when I wrote Bourbon and Blues, uh, he was my uh, contributing editor. And then he invited me to the Kentucky Bourbon Festival and I could launch my book at uh, Four Roses Distillery. That's awesome. That was in 2012. Then he surprised me. He went to, he sent a letter to the governor and asked if, uh, if I could be named a Kentucky Colonel for my work on bourbon. And I was nominated a Kentucky Colonel and I've been uh, carrying that title uh, no for way. some years. Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dutch, Dutch country boy. Oh, I yeah. love that. The Kentucky Colonel. That's awesome. I got to start running in the circles that you run in, folks that'll surprise you with things and and invite you to their distillery. That I, I got to get into that that group of friends. Where, where are you based? So we're in the chimney of Idaho. In the chimney of Idaho. I think there's have, a, a uh, distillery in Spokane. Uh, I might be. We have family in Seattle. I know that's not sure. Not too that's close. Four and a half hours away, though. It's pretty close. There's a Woodenville Whiskey Distillery. Okay. That's a nice one too. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, I have not made it to distillery yet in my life, so I got to get busy. I was supposed to be in Kentucky this summer, and then uh, COVID, the big C, uh, you know, hit hit the world. So maybe next year. Well, if you if you ever need an introduction, let's keep in touch over email. Yes, please. I'd be happy to, to introduce you. And uh, usually distillers like when, when, uh, when the writing folk come, come and see and do reports uh, they're usually very very nice that uh, would be great well I, I i'd be eager to give him uh giving him an episode and um uh hans i'd love it if you came back on we'll, we'll find a reason to have you back on i know you you have quite a a backlist of, of books and other things that you that you write but uh maybe we could do a live taste testing that would be fun yeah, we could certainly do that, and then uh, use something like Zoom or meetings. And yes. So people can. I, I do that occasionally for uh, people here in Europe. I mentioned the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. I'm one of their honorary ambassadors, so I do some stuff on. Uh, now in COVID times, uh, we do it on on, uh, Zoom. on, on Zoom. We okay. have another called Streamyard or Yard Stream, Streamyard, and that's like a virtual studio, so you can have. Uh, five pre presenters, a host and co-hosts, and they can be on physically different locations. And the, the 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 primary host he can decide who's who's talking and who, who's being seen. And we've done the, this with a musician in on the Isle of Skye, with a distiller uh, in Glasgow, with a host in Edinburgh, and I was the co-host in the Netherlands. And and people, you can broadcast it, it together over Facebook, over Instagram, YouTube, and people can respond immediately. So you get highly interactive uh, sure. form of uh, of television. And so people would ask us questions. So they were the co-makers of the program because they could steer the program in a certain direction right. if we wanted to, of course, because there's limits uh, to what you want to say, what you can do. But uh, look into that. Uh, yes. StreamYard or Stream, I forgot the name. We absolutely. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to convince me much to do a uh, <laughs> a live taste test. That would be a blast, and uh, I'm sure it would be electric radio essentially for folks. We could also we could also maybe do a YouTube. Uh, put it on YouTube. Yeah, and I'd love to talk more about writing in general because well, whiskey is the main body of my work now, but I've done totally different books, uh, and the writing process itself. I always enjoy talking about that. But, uh, 
I assume you, you write articles as well. You don't do podcasts only. I don't do podcasts only. So yes, you, you would be, uh, that episode would be wonderful and fit right in with, with what we do here. So, uh, Hans, we got to get you back on. And that's the, it was the field guide. Field guide to whiskey. That's the official title. Perfect. Awesome. The field guide to whiskey. Go get that on Amazon or wherever you get books. In bookstores on Amazon. Yeah. Perfect. If Perfect. you want to sign a copy, you have to come currently to the Netherlands because we can't fly to the US at the moment because of COVID. <laughs> That's right. I'll, maybe I'll mail mine. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, what I could do, I could write a little message for you and scan it and then send it via email. You can put it in your book as a mar- bookmark. That would be awesome. Shall I use uh, one of my... Ah, what, what I can do if you enjoy that, I'll show you. Now, this is blank. Okay. On the other side... My credentials as a Kentucky Colonel. So if you like, (laughs) I would love it. No, I'd love it. Send that one. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it's. I've pushed you past your time. That's okay, but I'm. I'm starting to feel a little hungry. It's. uh, It's six thirty in the evening now. Perfect. Nine thirty here. We finally did it. Thank you so much for your patience, Hans. And everyone, go get his stuff. Appreciate you, Jake. uh, Let's keep in touch. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yes, sir. You got it. Bye bye. Bye bye.